Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized. Until today. I'm Courtney Enlow, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. In a mundane scrapyard at 76 Trotter's Lane in London sits a box. To most, it's unassuming similar to many others that they'd passed by a thousand times. But on this day in 1963, the doors of this quiet blue box opened for the first time, and a pair of curious school teachers, and with them, a television audience, take their first steps into an adventure that will captivate audiences for decades to come. For the first time, we learn that this police box is bigger on the inside. It's the doorway to all of time and space with a madman or madwoman leading us there. It was the casting reveal heard round the world. In summer 2017, in a special clip created to air during Wimbledon, Jodie Whittaker was announced as the newest actor and first woman to take over the iconic role of the Doctor on the long-running British science fiction series Doctor Who. The announcement was met by praise from many and scorn from a smaller but often more vocal crowd. But while debates raged across the internet about whether or not a woman should play the doctor and whether or not women's voices were important to the long-running series, the thing many people lost sight of is that a woman had played one of the most vital roles in the creation of the series. Like Whitaker, she strode into the hallways of a venerable boys club to take on a position once only occupied by men. While many American Doctor Who fans have never heard of her, despite the important role she played in the creation of the series, in the UK, she is revered as one of the most important figures in television. Her name was Verity Lambert. How important is Doctor Who to your impressive CV? Oh, very important. I mean, I wouldn't, I felt, feel that Doctor Who was the thing that launched me on my way, uh, very much so. And also, um, it was one of the things I most enjoyed making because it, in those days, because of, its, because of its beginnings, we were rather left alone to do what we wanted. Verity Lambert was born in London in 1935. The daughter of a Jewish accountant, she went to school at Rodin, a boarding school in Brighton before eventually studying at the Sorbonne in Paris, as well as attending secretarial college in London. Her first job out of school was typing menus for the Kensington de Vere due to her ability to speak both English and French. She knew she wanted to work in television. An inspirational English teacher had drilled into her a fascination with the characterization and structure of well-written scripts. 
She got her first job in TV in 1956, putting her secretarial skills to work at Granada Television's press office. Awesome. But she was fired from it after only six months. Less awesome. Verity got another job within the TV industry, this time working as a typist at the Associated British Corporation's television division, otherwise known as ABC, not to be confused with the American Broadcasting Company, which uses similar call letters. Lambert quickly rose up the ranks at British ABC, moving from typist to secretary to production secretary, and finally as a production assistant, working under the new head of drama, Sidney Newman, who was overseeing the network's popular anthology series, Armchair Theater, and the spy drama, The Avengers, which, again, not to be confused with the Marvel Comics superhero one. In 1958, tragedy struck the set of Armchair Theater when, during a live broadcast, an actor died of a heart attack. Following the adage that the show must go on, the director of the program was forced to work with the actors directly on the studio floor to accommodate the loss, leaving Verity to take over his duties directing the cameras. It was her first taste of working as a director, and it fueled her ambition to do more. She took a year off from ABC to work in New York as a personal assistant to David Susskind before returning to the network with an increased ambition to direct and discovered that she was seemingly stuck in the role of production assistant without the possibility to gain a promotion. She tried several times to get work as a director only to be told there were enough women directors in television already. Staring at what seemed like an unbreakable glass ceiling and feeling frustrated at the stalling of her career, Verity Lambert began to consider leaving the television industry. She gave herself one more year and decided if she could not find career advancement within that time, she would abandon television. In December of that year, Sidney Newman left ABC TV to become head of drama at the BBC. And he had a job for Verity Lambert. And what about the other man, the quirky character? He's a doctor. A doctor? Mm-hmm. He should be a doctor, don't you think? Makes him an authority for you. So it kind of reassures you. So, what do you think? Look, Sydney, I would love to work with you again. Really, I would. It's just, I gave myself a year. Get on in TV or get out. Hey, 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 hey. I don't want you to be my assistant again, kid. I want you to produce it. That was a clip from the 2013 film An Adventure in Space and Time, a made-for-TV movie about the creation of Doctor Who, made to celebrate its 50th anniversary. The scene was of Sidney Newman pitching his new educational adventure program intended for children to Verity Lambert. The show was one of many ideas that Sidney Newman had come up with at the start of his tenure at the BBC. His hiring had been something of a sea change for the public television company. He'd been headhunted from ABC in order to shake up their status quo. They had been dealing with fierce competition in the new rival ITV and they were searching for someone who could strike the right balance between the broadcaster's mandate for public interest with the populism of commercial television. By early 1963, Newman's initial idea had formed into the early planning stages of a new series called Doctor Who, about an old man who traveled with companions throughout history and outer space. There was just one problem. Almost nobody else believed in it. Despite Newman's conviction that the show was a very good idea, Every producer on the BBC payroll, all of whom were men, turned it down. None of them were willing to take a risk on it. He knew he needed to bring in some fresh blood for the task. That's when he remembered Verity Lambert. In an interview with Doctor Who magazine in 1993, Newman said, I remembered Verity as being bright and, to use the phrase, full of piss and vinegar. 
She was gutsy and she used to fight and argue with me, even though she was not at a very high level as a production assistant. And so Verity Lambert went to work at the BBC, the youngest and only female producer at the network, where she would take the little show nobody believed in and guide it into an internationally beloved phenomenon. Can I help you? I think you're in my office. That's a rather interesting way of looking at it. I'm rather an interesting person. I don't doubt it. Rex Tucker, I'm looking after Doctor Who. Pending the appointment of the permanent producer. Oh, is he with you? You're looking at him. Over the course of early 1963, the show came together. The Doctor as a character had always been in pace as part of Newman's initial idea for it. But eventually his first three traveling companions, comprising his granddaughter Susan and a pair of school teachers, Ian and Barbara, were fleshed out as well. Newman's vague concept of a time machine that was bigger on the inside became the TARDIS, and due to being found in a junkyard, took on its iconic shape of a discarded police box, something seen as a mundane object in London at the time. The necessity of a simple prop that could be reused to keep under budget led to the decision of keeping the police box shape permanently, giving the show perhaps its most recognizable image. One of Verity Lambert's first major contributions to the future of the series was in her selection of actor William Hartnell to portray the Doctor. Two other actors had been offered the role and turned it down, but Verity believed in Hartnell, who had previously been known mostly for drill instructor and other hard men type roles. She knew he was capable of a more sensitive performance, one that would be perfect for the cantankerous lead of the show. Another notable contribution to the series in its infancy comes from another forgotten woman of genre, Delia Derbyshire. The Doctor Who theme song is credited to writer Ron Granier, but it was Derbyshire who recorded it at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Derbyshire crafted it as an electronic music score with a mix of oscillators, previously recorded sound effects, and other intricate sonic techniques. Her final sound had added so much to the written composition that when Granier first heard her track, he responded, Did I write that? Despite the decade-spanning success that Doctor Who would go on to become, the fledgling series' success was not the inevitability that hindsight would have us believe. The BBC at large gave very little support to the show, and Verity's first few months were stuffed with battles to bring the show together. In fact, even Newman, who was the closest thing one could call to the creator of the show, was so disappointed with the initial version of the first episode, An Unearthly Child, that he considered firing both Lambert and the director... Waris Hussein, who, by the way, was played in the movie by Sasha Dewan, the actor who now plays the master on Doctor Who. He gave them a chance to refilm the episode and, pleased with the results, approved the series to make its screen debut on November 23rd, 1963. We heard a young girl's voice call out to you. Your hearing must be very acute. I didn't hear anything. It came from in here. You imagined it? I certainly did not imagine it. Young man, is it reasonable to suppose that Anybody would be inside a cupboard like that? Mm. The rocky start to the show didn't end there. If that date in 1963 sounds familiar to you, it's because November 22nd, 1963, is the date of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Even in the UK, the news had so dominated the attention of the populace that the premiere of a new science fiction show was completely overshadowed by it, and the show only drew an audience of 4.4 million viewers. An extremely rare move for the era, in which the term rerun had not yet been coined, 
the BBC chose to air a repeat viewing of the episode the following week prior to the airing of the second episode. This rerun drew 6 million viewers. An Unearthly Child was the show's first serial, and highlighting the TARDIS as a time machine took the leads back in time to meet a tribe of primitive cavemen known as the Tribe of Gum. It was a modest success, but it was the second serial that laid the foundation for the series' longevity and was possibly Verity Lambert's greatest triumph. Sidney Newman's initial mandate for the show was that it should not feature any, quote, bug-eyed monsters, as he was trying to avoid the tropes of B-movies of the era. But writer Terry Nation had submitted a script originally called The Mutants. In this story, the TARDIS crew would arrive on a post-apocalyptic world in which two races were at war. Verity believed in the script so much that she selected it to be the show's second serial. And according to a 2013 article from BBC America, if any one decision could be said to be solely responsible for the fact that Doctor Who still exists now, it is this one. The serial spanned seven weeks, which saw the ratings of the show spike from 6.9 million viewers to 10.4 million for its final two episodes. It introduced an alien race that would go on to become the Doctor's most persistent adversaries across time and space, a genocidal race of mutants traveling around in tanks that resemble salt and pepper shakers. Though the initial script was titled The Mutants, it was renamed after these monsters, the Daleks. You will move ahead of us and follow my directions this way. Immediately. Verity Lambert would continue to serve as Doctor Who's producer for the next two years. She guided the program through its infancy, helping during that time as it struggled to find its tone and to establish the character of the Doctor, shaping him into the heroic figure of the series as we know her today. Under her watch, the show shifted away from its educational origins and into its more natural place as a dramatic series. The low budgets at the time meant a constantly stressful production, especially due to Lambert's insistence on trying to keep the production values high. The term Verity Lambert Syndrome became known as an in-joke at the BBC for any production requiring a large amount of props and sets. In 1965, she chose to leave the show, believing that if it were to thrive, it needed to do so with fresh eyes and fresh voice to keep it moving. The ethos remains tied to the show's DNA to this day, in which every few years or so, a new showrunner and creative team will take over and give it an almost entirely new look and feel from their predecessors. But Doctor Who was only the beginning of a long and extremely accomplished career in film and television for Verity Lambert. She gained a reputation over the next decade as a go-to producer for guiding a tricky or risky show through its production process, almost always successfully. She would work with the BBC until 1974, when her final assignment was to produce the six-part suffragette drama, Shoulder to Shoulder. In 1974, she left the BBC to take on the role of head of drama at Thames Television, who wished to emulate the BBC's success under Sidney Newman by bringing Verity, his protege, in to work the same magic for them. I think I look back on, on, on almost everything I've done with pleasure because... I never really wanted to do anything that I didn't want to do. Even when I was a young producer and should have been extremely grateful for what was thrown to me, mm. I simply couldn't do something that I thought wasn't right. She delivered in stride, eventually working her way up to being named chief executive of their films division. She even launched her own company, Cinema Verity, 
which produced a number of films, including A Cry in the Dark, the Meryl Streep film from which A Dingo Ate My Baby comes from. She even attempted to return to Doctor Who, which had been canceled in 1989. She offered to produce the show independently for the BBC in the 90s, but they'd already begun negotiating the rights with American producer Philip Segal to restore the show. She did produce another series for the BBC as an independent producer, working freelance outside of her own company. She took over production on the comedy drama series Jonathan Creek, which would run from 1998 to 2004. Her second collaboration with Creek creator David Renwick, another comedy drama, Love Soup, would be the last project Verity Lambert ever worked on before her death from cancer on November 22, 2007, almost 44 years to the day of an unearthly child's debut. Verity Lambert's legacy is a body of work so vast that in some circles, Doctor Who could be considered a footnote in her career, a launching point for her conquering a media landscape that she had once been told she wasn't invited to explore. She is remembered as being a fighter, someone who would battle the powers that be to get things made, and someone who would battle writers often to the point of red-in-the-face frustration when she believed they weren't delivering scripts that were fulfilling their potential. In 2002, she was appointed as an officer of the British Empire for her services to the nation's film and television production. That same year, she would receive a BAFTA award for outstanding contribution to television. She was married in 1973 to television director Colin Buxey, but never remarried following their divorce in 1987. She never had children, stating in an interview, I can't stand babies. No, I love babies as long as their parents take them away. Relatable. She has been referenced by Doctor Who multiple times during the modern revival of this series with Easter egg character names and the 2007 Christmas special Voyage of the Damned featuring a dedication to Lambert before the closing credits. In July 2014, the Doctor Who fan organization Doctor Who Appreciation Society unveiled a blue heritage plaque at Riverside Studios in Hammersmith, London. The plaque, commemorating Lambert's work at the studios and beyond, was unveiled by her longtime friend, Waris Hussein. In the BBC America article mentioned earlier discussing the origins of the show, it is said that the early days of Doctor Who was a divide between the skeptics and the true believer. Verity Lambert, they say, was always a believer. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Riley Silverman and read by Courtney Enlow. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at SciFiFangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SciFiFangirls.